When the angel of the Lord spoke to the terrified shepherds outside Bethlehem, his words were calming to the extreme. But what did that heavenly messenger really mean when he announced tidings of comfort and joy? And is that scene merely a fact to be processed or a declaration that calls us to action today, 2,000 years later? Join us for a stimulating conversation coming up. Hey, welcome to The Land and the Book. If you're new, our host is noted Old Testament scholar, Dr. Charlie Dyer, and I'm John Geiger. And Charlie, I'm amazed the new year is really upon us. Before you know it, 2023 is going to be right here. And you have to ask yourself, what do you want your priorities to be for the coming year? More than that, would you like a reminder to pray? Yeah, I agree, John. That's why our friends at Life and Messiah are offering a 2023 prayer calendar to land in the book listeners. Each month displays a beautiful image relating to an aspect of Jewish life and a point of prayer for that month. All the major Jewish holidays scattered throughout the year are also highlighted. This calendar will be a daily reminder for you to pray for the Jewish people and Life and Messiah's ministry. If you'd like one of these artistic calendars for yourself or as a gift for someone else, visit lifeandmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to find out how you can receive your calendar. That's lifeinmessiah.org. If you're new to the program, this is the first of four segments. We're going to take a look at current events that are unfolding all week long, and uh, then we're going to take you to a fascinating conversation with Dr. Mark Yarbrough later on. It's questions and answers. And Charlie, you have this thing in the fourth segment called a devotional. What do we mean by that? Well, that's where we try and take people to a specific area in the land, open up the book, and see how the land of Israel and the Word of God fit together. In fact, right now we're in a segment, a two-part series called A Tale of Two Cities and Two Kings and Two Prophets, coming from the Old Testament book of Second Chronicles. All right, sounds intriguing. We'll look forward to that. Right now, today's current event stories, tensions remain high between Israelis and Palestinians. What's behind the latest surge in violence and what can be done to reduce tension? Charlie, this has just been going on for weeks and weeks now. Oh, it has. In fact, it could have been far worse. Uh, I just read a recent report. Uh, between four and 500 terrorist events this year were, were thwarted by Israeli security forces. Uh, imagine if there had been four to 500 more. That's over a, a terrorist incident a day hmm. that's been stopped. But anyway, I see three major reasons for all of the increase in violence. The first, and we've talked about it before, it's the rising sense of dissatisfaction, even despair among the Palestinians. They're dissatisfied with Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas and the Palestinian Authority, which they see as corrupt and ineffective. Uh, they see no real progress in terms of a lasting peace with Israel. Uh, they feel abandoned by the Gulf states and other Arab countries that have bypassed them to create economic and political ties directly with Israel. Now, the second reason for the increase in violence is the rise of the religious right in Israel. Uh, the new government that's still being formed right now apparently gives Ben Gavir the role of national security minister, uh, giving him control over the West Bank border police and some aspects of the army's role in the West Bank. Now, Palestinians see this as proof that Israel's expansion of settlements in the West Bank will continue and accelerate. For young and restless Palestinians, this is virtually a declaration of war, and they're seeing this as a use-it-or-lose-it moment. Now, at the same time, the appointment has emboldened some of the radical elements who are pushing for more confrontation with the Palestinians. Now, as if all of that's not bad enough, a third factor is the appointment of Hadi Amr as U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Israel and Palestinian Affairs. Amr has historically been sympathetic toward Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood. 
The expectation is this will result in the U.S. putting more pressure on Israel to move toward a so-called two-state solution, with Israel being expected, of course, to make all the compromises. The last time such an approach was tried, it actually resulted in more violence. So what can be done to reduce tension? Well, I think the U.S. needs to begin by expressing its genuine support for Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state. Then privately, they can speak to Netanyahu about holding the far-right fringe of his coalition in check. The U.S. can also work to identify and support Palestinian leaders with the courage to enter genuine peace negotiations with Israel without the so-called 67 boundaries as a precondition. Now, that needs to be a leader who will fight corruption within the Palestinian Authority. And finally, I think the U.S. could work to promote Israeli-Palestinian economic cooperation. Helping both sides provide good jobs that pay a living wage could go a long way toward easing tensions. Well, no easy solutions there, but it'll be interesting to see what unfolds in the days and weeks ahead. Turkey is continuing to put pressure on the Kurds in northern Syria. Help us understand what is behind this renewed violence. Yeah, the precipitating event was the bombing that took place in Istanbul back on November 13. Turkey accused a Kurdish terror group of being behind the bombing, though the bomber was a Syrian, with some reports suggesting she had links to Islamist Syrian opposition rather than Kurdish groups. But even prior to the bombing, Turkish President Erdogan was issuing threats against Kurds in northern Syria. Turkey launched an air operation against the Kurdish forces, which began on November 20. And the fear is that this will soon be followed by a ground incursion by Turkish troops. Now, the U.S. has called on Turkey to show restraint. And we've offered to move our Kurdish allies 30 kilometers, that's almost 19 miles, from the border to keep Turkey from launching that ground operation. Turkey denied it was targeting U.S. allies or civilians, but reports emerged from the area claiming that civilians and non-military infrastructure were targeted. The reason behind Turkey's attack seems to be more than just a response to the bombing. Turkey has a national election coming up in June, and Erdogan's monetary policies have pushed his country to the point of economic chaos. If the Kurdish minority in the country were to unite with the opposition, Erdogan and his party could be voted out of power. Some believe that blaming the Kurds and launching an attack is a calculated plan on the part of Erdogan to drive a wedge between Turkish Kurds and the other opposition parties. If the Kurds are seen as the problem, then the opposition would be unlikely to publicly unite with them in a time of crisis. Turkish national unity while facing an outside threat could be his way to maintain control. The only thing that could hold Erdogan in check would be the response of Russia and the U.S., but Russia's heavily involved in Ukraine, and the U.S. doesn't seem to have the political will right now to confront Turkey. And sadly, the losers in it all are the Kurdish people. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Old Testament scholar, lifetime student of the Middle East. I'm John Geiger. Story number three, excavations at ancient Hippos on the east side of the Sea of Galilee have turned up the remains of at least seven churches. What do we know about this city, Charlie, and what exactly was uncovered during the most recent excavation season? Yeah, this is an absolutely fascinating site. It was the northernmost of the cities known as the Decapolis. And very possibly, it was the city that was originally the hometown of that Gergesene demoniac, the one connected with the incident of the herd of swine that rushed down the steep bank into the sea. Well, excavations have been ongoing for several years, and the discovery of so many churches in such a relatively small area is one of the major surprises. The focus this past summer was on a church known as the Marturian of Theodorus, 
It's also known as the burnt church because of a destruction layer that was found previously. Four additional mosaic inscriptions were uncovered, bringing the total number of inscriptions found on this church to seven. Now, these mosaics included the names of individuals who paid for their installation or who made a contribution to the church for its construction. Now, one surprise was the discovery that these inscriptions in Greek contained both spelling errors and grammatical mistakes. Now, even though Greek was still the accepted ecclesiastical language at the time, this suggests the population of the town was now dominated by other local tongues and the people were no longer fluent in Greek. The archaeologists also found that the birds and fish pictured on the mosaics don't match native animals. It's as if the artist who was hired simply pictured generic representations, either suggesting a lack of familiarity or a lack of expertise. But the mosaics did include a representation of two fish and 12 baskets, probably picturing the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 that took place relatively near that area on the north side of the lake. The church had a beautiful view of the Sea of Galilee, but it appears to have been in a poorer section of town, farthest from the colonnaded city center. But right now, the site isn't easy to reach, but hopefully that will change in the coming years. This is definitely going to be a site worth visiting. Yeah, perhaps this will be the new Magdala. Yeah, and on the opposite side of the lake, but certainly a great spot to visit once they have a way to get us there easily. Hmm. Well, Charlie, just over two weeks ago, you had the pleasure of having one of your knees replaced. A delightful experience. Now, an Israeli startup is developing a meniscus replacement that could significantly reduce recovery time. Tell us about this new procedure from Amazing Israel. Yeah, thinking, I banged my head going, man, they'd come up with it now. Where was it earlier? <laughs> yeah, m- My knee problems actually started several years ago with a torn meniscus. And had this new procedure and product been available, I possibly could have avoided total knee replacement. Uh, the Israeli startup company is called Active Implants International. And they're developing an artificial meniscus replacement called New Surface. That is N-U Surface, all written together. The device substitutes for the natural human meniscus, which sits between the bones of the knee, acting as kind of a pillow in there to prevent grinding, rubbing, friction, and the accompanying pain. Now, there are similar devices on the market, but New Surface's product apparently has several advantages. The first is a procedure for installing it. It's made in a way that doesn't require it to be anchored or sutured into place, reducing installation and recovery time for the patient. The second advantage is a timed drug release. The device releases two drugs, one immediately after being implanted and the other over several months. And those drugs are designed to prevent inflammation and cartilage degeneration. And the final advantage is a process to specifically custom tailor the device's dimensions to match the patient's body. A delegation of experts gathered in Israel in November to discuss ways to advance the technology and to speed up the approval and go-to-market process. Now, John, I'm thankful for my new knee. But I'm also hoping that this new process will be available before my other knee might ever need to be replaced. (laughs) Amen to that. And that's a look at current events here on The Land and the Book. A full program today, including up next, a conversation about tidings of comfort and joy with Dr. Mark Yarbrough. Later on, questions and answers. I love hearing what you're curious about as you work your way through Scripture. Charlie, remind us again of your devotional and where we're going. Well, we're heading to uh, 2 Chronicles 19, and it's a study, a tale of two cities and two kings and two prophets, and it's the second part of this two-part series, and uh, the place and the prophets might surprise people. All right, it's all ahead on today's edition of The Land of the Book. But up next, tidings of comfort and joy.
When the angel of the Lord spoke to the terrified shepherds outside Bethlehem, his words were calming to the extreme, and they needed to be that way. But what did that heavenly messenger really mean when he announced tidings of comfort and joy? And is that scene merely a, a biblical footnote, a fact to be processed, or is it a declaration that calls us to action or response of some kind today, 2,000 years later? Hey, you've joined us for The Land and the Book. It's segment two. Dr. Mark Yarbrough serves as president and professor of Bible exposition at Dallas Theological Seminary. As an author, speaker, and academician, his practical communication leads him to conferences, classrooms, and churches throughout the U.S. and around the world. Among other books that he's written, Jonah, Beyond the Tale of a Whale. And today he's here with a Christmas focus. We're talking about his new devotional, Tidings of Comfort and Joy. Hey, welcome back to the land of the book, Mark. Uh, it's always an honor to be with you. I promise you that. Well, you write that it's actually possible to get caught up in a cultural Christmas and actually miss Messiah. What is a cultural Christmas, and what does it look like for Christians to miss Messiah at Christmas? Well, I think really what I'm talking about there is that it's possible for us to miss the reason for the celebration. Mm -hmm. Think of it this way. You know, if we went to a birthday party with, uh, you know, for a three-year-old or something like that, and everybody all got together, and then we actually never celebrated that child. Think of how horrible that would be. It'd be devastating for the child. I think that we need to think of Christmas that way. I'm all about parties and celebrations and people getting together, but we need to constantly bring to the forefront the reason for the celebration. And that's the simple fact from our standpoint, from what's been revealed in God's Word, is that and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what we're celebrating. Hmm. Many, many little uh, approachable devotionals in this small book, and I, I love the one titled Small Fry. It's based on Micah 5, verse 2, and it starts with a rather unsettling story from your childhood. Tell us about that pipe in the night and how it illustrates the message of Micah 5, verse 2. Yeah, I think it's a story everybody can uh, connect to. Uh, there was a, a leak in a pipe, and it just led to this great mess, you know, the sheetrock getting wet and sheetrock's collapsing. And you get up there and you see in this pipe, it's just a pinhead hole. <laughs> and that little bitty hole, you know, just had great impact. Well, that's a negative side of it. Obviously, when we think of the scriptural story and the presentation where Micah prophesies that out of this small town of Bethlehem is going to come a great thing, and that is the Savior. So I think it's important for us as believers to realize that small does not mean insignificant. Hmm. And so when we think of how God chose to invest through himself in the birth of our Savior in Bethlehem, that uh, it reminds even us that God can use our little things for his great glory. Yeah, and no big names involved either. Mary and Joseph, no reputation. They didn't have big names not a big story, not a big income, nothing big about it. That is exactly right. And God moved heaven and earth to have a Roman census at that time that drew them there because God has a tendency to use little things mm. in great ways. Exactly right. Fish for Christmas is a devotional loaded with puns, fun, and fish. Uh, it's an unusual thought about Christmas based in Mark chapter 6. Give us some insights here. Yeah, it's it's funny because I, I try to bring a little into the text of this word, ichthys, and um, that's the word that is actually used in the New Testament just for fish. It's a generic word for fish, so most of the time when you see that in the Gospels, uh, that's the word that is used. But ichthys is a word 
that really is an acronym that the early church used. It's not like we're making this up now. The early church did this, and every one of those letters stands for something. And when you put it all together, of Jesus Christ, God's Son, the Savior of the world, and that's really the best way for us to translate that, that really is the message of Christmas. Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world— that should be a symbol for Christmas. We don't normally think of it that way. We think of a lot of the secular symbols that we have, but I'm just kind of subtly suggesting, saying, hey, hey, why don't you this year, why don't you give a symbol of the fish? We all see that on the back of cars, mm-hmm. but we forget that it's a word that represents what that symbol stands for. And I just love that. Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. That's mm-hmm. Christmas. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, joined by Dr. Mark Yarbrough, who is president and professor of Bible exposition at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, you describe this book as an action-oriented devotional. What kind of action should people expect? Well, for every one of these devotionals, I just try to lead us in thinking about what we can do with it. There's nothing wrong, certainly, with us marveling at the text, mm-hmm. uh, having these moments of pause you know, and reflection and stuff like that. But I think that sometimes we we best learn when we do, right? I mean, that's a great educational philosophy for all of us. We learn by doing. And so I try to suggest some things out of every one of these devotionals along the way of giving some practical things that we can put our hands to, that we can lead our children or our grandchildren in, or, or some ways of the normal things that we do around the Christmas time period to do it in a way that will jar our attention and, again, bring us back to that very first question to make sure that we don't miss the reason for the celebration, and that's the Lord Jesus. In the book you comment, one of the goals of the writing here is to walk us through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And, of course, the birth of Jesus was promised long before his arrival. Why do you think so many evangelical churches shy away from the Old Testament roots of the Christmas story? Well, we could speak hours on this one, couldn't we? Um, In part, it's because there's just a faulty understanding of the Old Testament, and uh, we don't teach about the Old Testament probably like we should. I mean, I really believe the Old Testament and the New Testament are organically related. We have one continuous story that runs from Genesis to Revelation. And um, so one of the things that I wanted to try to do is to step all the way back, even into the book of Genesis, because I really do believe that we get the, the first shrouded presentation of the gospel that goes back into humanity's worst moment. And it occurs in that garden where sin arrives and is embraced by man and woman that are created in the image of God. And I think if we understand that, it's going to give us a greater confidence in God God was already at work from the beginning. Frequently when I'm preaching or teaching on this, I use the language of saying the cross was not plan B. Mm. Uh, God didn't have a workaround. He he knew exactly what he was doing when he chose to create. He knew where this was going to go. And it was already with his own investment in it that he was moving towards the cross for our redemption, for our reconciliation. And so when we then get into the New Testament, right, when we step into the Gospels, that's why there's so much language about promise and the fulfillment of these promises. And so I think the better we understand our Old Testament, the better we're going to understand our New Testament. So that's kind of why I wanted to do a devotional that's Mm -hmm. not just the nativity accounts. 
And that certainly has a place, and I do some of that in this book as well. But I wanted to start way back in the beginning yes. and make a run towards the Gospels, you know. Our guest today on The Land and the Book, Dr. Mark Yarbrough, president of Dallas Theological Seminary. He's written Tidings of Comfort and Joy. Hey, what's your favorite devotional in this book, and, and why is it your favorite? Oh, my goodness. That's hard. That's a hard one for me to answer, brother. I'm telling you, because, you know, <laughs> so many times like, hey, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? And it's like, right. Does that mean your other ones are not your favorite? You know? But when I'm thinking about this one, maybe sheep and their shepherd, you know, I kind of took a little glance at uh, Psalm 23. Part of that's because I just love the outdoors. I love the incredible picture that is used there and that very powerful Psalm that we're all familiar with. And I think in a lot of our worlds, you know, we think of, oh, fluffy little sheep and, you know, they're <laughs> just so cute. And, and I'm like, those are obviously people that have never worked with sheep because I'm telling you, it is not a compliment to be called sheep. I hate phrasing it. So forgive me if I'm offending somebody, but sheep are just dumb as a brick. I've worked with them for years, had a big herd of sheep. And, and so whenever we're called sheep, it reminds us how dependent we are. Mm. And so I really think that strong connection from the Old Testament, right, even like a Psalm 23, moving into the New, when Jesus says that he is the shepherd, he's the great shepherd, that just reminds us of how desperately we need him. And so maybe that would be one of my favorite ones just because of the fact that it's a powerful image that comes out of the ancient Near East, and you've got to step back and you've got to be a, a sheep and a shepherd to kind of understand how that picture works. All right, let's get creative for just a minute. If Jesus were to join a typical evangelical church in middle America today, if there is such a place and there is such a church, how do you think he might tweak the way we celebrate his birth? What would he underscore? What would he maybe say we've emphasized too much or missed entirely? You know, I think I'm going to go back to that question before, you know, when you asked about, you know, how important is it to understand the Old Testament? Uh, to understand the New Testament and what I was trying to do in the depot, I think that maybe one of the things that Jesus might say is he might emphasize that when we get into the Gospels, that he is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament covenant promises. So in other words, that's going to force us to go back and to see those incredible connections. So it goes back to that bigger theme of why a Devo that runs from Genesis to Revelation, right? Yeah. Is that it's taken us all the way back to the Old Testament. And I think that the more we get into the Gospels, and every Gospel writer does this, even though we have the primary nativity accounts, right, in um, you know Matthew and Luke, but even in terms of what like John does with taking us all the way back to the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, is that every Gospel writer in their own way is wanting us to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament covenant promises. And so they're trying to pull us back and say, this is what God's been about from the beginning, and that this is fulfillment in front of our eyes, prophecy being fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah. Now, they're shocked about it. There's no doubt about that. But it's important. I think maybe that's what Jesus would say. And again, it gives us great confidence in who God is, that God's always good at his word. Mm -hmm. Back to the angel of the Lord and his message, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. I think sometimes despite our outreach events, it feels like for many of us, those tidings of great joy promised by the angel are kind of kept almost exclusively for us, the found 
rather than the lost? How can we nudge our churches a bit more toward an others-oriented mindset, others being non-believers? Well, what a great question and a reminder. Um, you know, if we are saved by grace through faith, we are grace recipients, and that means that we are called to be grace givers. This little devotional starts off with a foreword by my friend Chip Ingram, and he used a great metaphor, a picture of saying that the Bible is the greatest rescue story ever told. And, uh, you know, it hit me that that's true. It's a rescue story, and that's our story that we've been pulled into, again, not by our own doing, but by grace. And what that means is that if we have been rescued by definition, it means that we're now drafted and we're put on the rescue team, that that's our goal now, that, you know, Christmas should remind believers of our purpose. You know, I use this phrase a lot. We haven't just been saved from something, and that is hell and eternal damnation, but we've been saved for something that mm -hmm. makes a difference in our world today, yes. and that Christmas should compel believers, right? to share our story, the greatest story ever told. And so every time we celebrate, every time we say Merry Christmas, every time we get to extend love through a gift, that we need to be intentional, especially to those that do not know this story, because it can be theirs as well. So that's kind of one of the thoughts of this, is, is to compel us to be outward focused. Tidings of Comfort and Joy, a devotional from Dr. Mark Yarbrough, from Dallas Theological Seminary. Always a great conversation. Thanks for stimulating our brains, I think, to a more thoughtful Christmas. And uh, always good to have you. Hope you'll come back again. To God be the glory. I'll join you anytime. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're back with questions and answers. Looking forward to hearing one from you, maybe, as you stay with us here on The Land and the Book. It's that time. Time to listen now as Dr. Charlie Dyer, our host, answers your Bible questions. I say yours because, well, they could be yours. Maybe you've never sent us your question. It's welcome anytime at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. So many questions to answer, Charlie. Let's dig right in with Williams. He wants to know, are the words sin, transgression, and iniquity all synonyms, and can they be used interchangeably or do they differ in meaning in Scripture? If not, could you elaborate? By the way, we listen to your program on KHCB out of Houston. Well, the words are related, though they do have different meanings. Uh, the word sin has the basic idea of missing or failing to hit the mark. I think it's expressed best by Paul in Romans 3.23. All have sinned, and there he's using the verbal form of the word, and fall short of the glory of God. You know, God set a standard, and to sin is to fall short of achieving that standard. The Greek word transgression, well, that has the idea of, of going over in the sense of deliberately disregarding or, or crossing over a line. Uh, the idea is that God has set boundaries and someone deliberately chooses to violate the boundaries God has set. Uh, sometimes in the Bible, the word's actually translated trespass, which gives the idea of trespassing or stepping over that boundary that God has put up. And the word iniquity, well, in the Old Testament, uh, it's used more often than it is in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, it has the idea from a root that means to, uh, to bend or to twist or to distort. Uh, and when used in a context talking about sin, it has the idea more of perversion or crooked behavior. So as you can see, the words are closely related, but to sin was to fall short of God's standard of righteousness. 
transgression had the idea of deliberately choosing to disobey or step over a boundary God had set up. Mm. And iniquity was our effort to twist and distort what God said to justify our actions. Megan wants to know about the differing accounts of Paul's initial launching into ministry from Galatians and Acts. They differ somewhat, one of them mentioning Paul going to Arabia, one of them not. Uh, Can you explain all of this? Well, I I can. I start this way. I think the two passages can be harmonized. Uh, I start by remembering Luke is Paul's traveling companion. He wrote the book of Acts while he's with Paul in Rome during Paul's first imprisonment. Paul was the source for actually most of the narrative, especially that part of Paul's life that uh, happened before he and Luke came together. So since Paul had already written Galatians by the time he and Luke connected, I assume Paul had no problem uh, with what Luke wrote, harmonizing with what he had actually experienced. So in terms of how we uh, fit it together, uh, well, there's a bit of complexity there, but I start this way. Uh, Neither Paul nor Luke were intending their descriptions to include every single detail of Paul's life. And that's why, for the sake of their argument, Paul focused on his lack of contact with church leaders in Jerusalem, while Luke compressed the narrative on the time Paul spent in Arabia and Damascus. So the, the apparent discrepancies can be harmonized when we remember that the one thing they have in common is Paul visited Jerusalem, and I think the Acts 15 and the Galatians 1 events are the same events in both. Questions and answers. That's our focus on this segment of The Land and the Book with Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. Here's a question from Todd. Can you help me with the chronology of Jeremiah 29, verse 11? Do we have any idea how long after the captivity began that that prophecy was given? Well, I think we can make a good guess when Jeremiah's letter described in that uh, chapter was written. Uh, We're told in verses 1 and 2 he wrote it after King Jehoiachin, along with the artisans and craftsmen, had been carried away to Babylon. Well, that's the second deportation that took place in 597 B.C., Jeremiah then says in verse 3, he entrusted the letter to an individual whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, had sent to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And it's possible uh, that that took place around the time Zedekiah himself was summoned to Babylon. So Jeremiah wrote another scroll we know in chapter 51, verse 59 that's mentioned, also written about that time. And in that case, Jeremiah gives a specific date, which happens to be 593 BC. So anyway, based on all of that, I assume the letter mentioned in chapter 29 was likely written around the same time, probably around 594, 593 BC. And if that's the case, uh, the captives would have been in Babylon in Daniel's case for about 12 years, or in the case of Jehoiachin and all the artisans and craftsmen, about three to four years already uh, before Jeremiah wrote to them. Augustine has a question in regard to the Red Sea crossing in Exodus. Did it take place on the eastern side of the Sinai Peninsula, or where did the Israelites cross the Red Sea? Uh, Well, I've seen the evidence offered on that, the eastern tongue of the Red Sea, you know, the Saudi Arabia, Mount Sinai position, but I really don't believe the evidence for that is at all compelling. In fact, I have two major problems with the original work on which that view is based. First, nothing's ever been produced that can independently be tested or verified by others. You know, when when it comes to claims saying they found chariot wheels under the Red Sea, I like the wisdom of Proverbs 18.17. The first to present his case seems right till another comes forward and questions him. So my question is, if chariot wheels were discovered, why not bring one to the surface so it can be independently tested and verified? Now, I know the reasons that are given, but I get suspicious when none of the so-called evidence is ever available to be examined by others. My second problem is biblical. 
Uh, the biblical and historical evidence points to the Sinai Peninsula itself as the location for Mount Sinai, not Saudi Arabia. Now, I'm not saying Jebel Musa, the, the place that most people go to is the actual Mount Sinai. Uh, I've been up to the top of it. It's certainly a potential candidate. But I believe the biblical Mount Sinai was somewhere in that general area on the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula. And having traced the route of the Exodus, I believe the geography of the entire region matches the account in the Bible far better than the supposed location in Saudi Arabia. It's the land of the book from Moody Radio. We're answering your Bible questions. Here's one from Kem. Could you please help me understand the incident in 1 Samuel 19 where Saul is prophesying? What would he be prophesying about? Yeah, we're never actually told what he prophesied. Now, most people, when they think of prophecy, they think of foretelling the future. But prophecy also involves foretelling in the sense of proclaiming a direct message from God, even if it doesn't relate to the future. So I believe in this case, Saul's prophecy was more likely that latter, the foretelling. Uh, The passage itself is interesting in what it teaches us about Saul. Uh, He thought he was in charge. He was frustrated when his command to capture David appeared to have been disregarded. And he finally decided to take matters into his own hands. And that's when he's subjected to God's direct divine control. He stripped off his garments, which included his royal garments, and lay naked all that night. Now, to do something like that demonstrated he wasn't in control of his own body because a king wouldn't willingly humiliate himself in that way publicly. I suspect God then had him declare something to the effect that, God's in charge. God's making me do this, and I'm being publicly humiliated by God himself. Now, I don't know the exact words he might have spoken, but I strongly believe they in some way matched the actions that God was forcing him to do. Here's a question. What's the difference between the terms Hebrew, Jewish, and Israelite, or modern Israeli? I'd also like to know if you see a difference of interest or receptiveness to the gospel between Jewish Americans and Jewish Israelis. Well, you know, the term Hebrew comes from a word it actually meant to traverse or to pass over. It was used by people in Canaan to describe those who had passed over the Jordan from the lands to the east. Uh, the first time it's ever used in the Bible is in Genesis 14. Abraham's referred to as Abraham the Hebrew, meaning Abraham, the guy who came from over there on the other side of the Jordan River. Uh, the word Israel uh, began in Genesis 32 when God changed Jacob's name to Israel. Uh, The word comes from two Hebrew words that have the idea of wrestling with or struggling with God. And then since Jacob had 12 sons, ultimately they became the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Finally, uh, the term Jewish comes from the name of the tribe Judah, one of Jacob's 12 sons and the tribe from which David came. When the kingdom of Israel split in two following the death of Solomon, the northern confederation of tribes were still called Israel, but the remaining tribes in the south took on the name of the dominant tribe, Judah. And then after the Babylonian captivity, when the remains of that group came back to the land, uh, the Hebrew form Yehudi, Judah, uh, was given to them, and it derives from that term Judah. So the word was eventually applied to all Jewish people while in captivity. Now, in answer to the last part of that question, I think there's a general lack of response or response is about the same for the Jewish Americans and Jewish Israelis. The good news is there are Jewish people both here in the United States and in Israel who are coming to faith, and that number appears to be on the increase. Before we let you go, 2023 will soon be here. Would you like a reminder to pray? 
Our friends at Life and Messiah are offering a 2023 prayer calendar to Land in the Book listeners. Each month displays a beautiful image relating to an aspect of Jewish life and a point of prayer for that month. All the major Jewish holidays scattered throughout the year are also highlighted. The calendar will be a daily reminder for you to pray for the Jewish people and Life and Messiah's ministry. Now, if you'd like one of these artistic calendars for yourself or as a gift for someone else, visit lifeandmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button. That's lifeandmessiah.org. Well, a fascinating list of questions today. Thank you, Charlie. And don't go away. Charlie's devotional is next here on The Land and the Book. Do you enjoy a good story? Boy, I sure do. And that's straight ahead on today's edition of The Land of the Book, a true story at that which makes it better yet. Charlie, where are you taking us on uh, today's devotional? Well, we're continuing our tale of two cities. Last week we went to Samaria. This week we're heading back to the city of Jerusalem as we look at this two-part story on Jehoshaphat. A tale of two cities and two kings and two prophets. Sound intriguing? I assure you it is. We'll get right to that. But first, this quick look at someone's Holy Land experience. Check this out. To see the nomads, the Bedouins, they have now settled down, but their life is not a whole lot easier than it was back 2,000 years. The women are still weaving goat's hair for their tents. They still sleep on the ground on mats. Yes, a water truck comes and brings water to the goats and sheep, but other than that, their lifestyle really has not changed. And to have that visual of how our spiritual ancestors had lived, it took almost their entire energy just to live. We have too many switches and buttons and gadgets that we can make ourselves warm, make ourselves cold, make ourselves something to eat or drink. And that whole Bedouin lifestyle is overwhelming to even think about. Love to hear the way God is at work in the lives of people who travel to Israel. Neat testimony there. Well, Charlie, I'm ready to head back into this story of A Tale of Two Cities. Well, thanks, John. You know, last week we started this two-part series, and we watched as King Jehoshaphat went from Jerusalem to Samaria to meet with King Ahab of Israel. Two very different cities, two very different kings. One city chosen by God, the other established by the most recent in a series of dynasties pushing to control the northern kingdom of Israel. One king was godly, but young and naive. The other was evil and wicked, but also incredibly crafty. Were it not for a godly prophet and God's superintending control, the godly king could have been killed and the ungodly one gotten away without harm. But God did intervene. And now godly King Jehoshaphat is bringing his army home. The battle was lost. His ally killed. The lone prophet of God vindicated and this young, naive king troubled in spirit. But as he approached Jerusalem in his palace, he was met by a lone visitor, a second solitary prophet playing a walk-on role in God's program for Israel. Then Jehoshaphat the king returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. Jehu, the son of Hanani the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord, and so bring wrath on yourself from the Lord? But there is some good in you, for you have removed the Ashtarot from the land, and you have set your heart to seek God. 
much like Micaiah last week. This prophet named Jehu rebukes Judah's king, her commander-in-chief. By offering to help King Ahab, Jehoshaphat had sided with a king committed to turning the people away from the God of Israel. And this most recent defeat was a sign of God's displeasure. But Jehu's message of wrath ended with a soft embrace from God who could see into Jehoshaphat's heart. Jehoshaphat had tried to eliminate idols in Judah, and he had set his heart on seeking God. In essence, the prophet reminded Jehoshaphat of the good things he had set out to do, even before he decided to partner with wicked King Ahab. Apparently, a now wiser Jehoshaphat got the message. How do we know that? Well, look at what happens next in 2 Chronicles 19. I see three key points. First, Jehoshaphat went out again among the people from Beersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and brought them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. The writer uses a merism, a figure of speech. From south to north and everywhere in between, the king went out to the people with a simple message, turn back to the Lord. Jehoshaphat became the Billy Graham of his generation, the one-man evangelist focusing on the key message. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, is our God, and you need to turn to him. And then Jehoshaphat appointed judges in the land in all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. He balanced his religious fervor with a practical emphasis on justice. Specifically, he tells them to be very careful what you do. For the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. This wasn't a message of social justice as we often hear today. It was a message that the courts were to apply the law equally, without regard to a person's personal wealth or position of influence in society. This wasn't to be the best justice money could buy. It was to be a justice that recognized the ultimate judge was sitting on his bench in heaven and watching to make sure those appointed to represent him were doing so fairly and impartially. Finally, Jehoshaphat made sure that, as we would say today, both the church and the state were committed to doing what was right, aligning both with God's word. He appointed some of the Levites and priests and some of the heads of his father's households of Israel for the judgment of the Lord and to judge disputes among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And to make sure that the connection would work, he appointed the chief priest and the leader of the tribe of Judah to serve as a combined religious and civil supreme court. So did this new system work? Well, the next chapter of Second Chronicles provides the answer. A combined army of three nations set out together to launch a surprise attack against Judah. They crossed the Dead Sea and camped at En Gedi, which is where they were finally spotted. It would take a few days to organize and a day or two to get the men and supplies up the cliffs and across the Judean desert. But almost certainly, Jerusalem could expect an attack within a week. There was far too little time to secure help from any ally. What was Jehoshaphat to do? The king called an assembly in Jerusalem and cried out to God for help, protection, and guidance. And God responded by speaking through one of the Levitical priests. Listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Jehoshaphat and his army went out from Jerusalem to meet the enemy, 
putting the choir in front. And when he reached the cliffs that looked down on Engedi, they saw the dead bodies of the armies that had been coming to attack. Evidently, the coalition had fallen apart as each group fought against the other. The battle really was the Lord's. Well, as we get ready to turn around and head back to Jerusalem, what lessons can we carry back with us as we finish this tale of two kings and two cities and two prophets? Once again, I see two lessons that are important for us today. First, God's priorities in life never change. The message from God to Jehoshaphat and then from Jehoshaphat to the people, was to put God first and follow his word, and then to make sure we put his word into practice in our dealings with others. Jesus said it this way, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. And second, The message from the prophet Jehu to Jehoshaphat came just after Jehoshaphat had made a really dumb decision. But God's message to him, and I think to us as well, was this. True success isn't measured by whether or not you fail. It's measured by how you respond when you realize you failed. Ahab repeated his mistake. Having lost 400 prophets of Baal to Elijah, he responded by hiring 400 more. In contrast, Jehoshaphat learned from his mistake. He stopped going to Israel and listening to false prophets. Instead, he went through his own land and set about to reform it spiritually and administratively. And when problems arose, he broke his old patterns and faced them in a new way that honored God. And maybe that's a lesson we all need to take to heart. And that brings our two-part devotional series to a close. Thank you, Charlie. I know you invest so much in these devotionals. And the nice thing is they are well-received. I can't tell you the number of times when I've been out and people comment on the program, and the thing they always talk about is those devotionals. And the nice thing is you can hear them again at our website, thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. You know, as we move through this Christmas season, I hope that you have come to that place in your life where Jesus is not for you just a story, not just a baby in a manger, but he's the Lord of your life, the leader of your life. Have you ever made him in charge of you? The Bible word is Savior. You can do that today, and a friend can help you at 888-NEED-HIM. Let Jesus be in charge of your life. Let him forgive you for the wrongdoing that you've done. That can happen for you today. Not a perfect life today. No, but a Jesus-in-charge life when you call 888-NEED-HIM. Our website is loaded up with great stuff to encourage you, including information about previous guests, future programs, and more. We're at thelandandthebook.org. You can check out information about Charlie's newest book and much more. That's thelandandthebook.org. Well, our time is gone. I'm John Gager on behalf of our host, Charlie Dyer, thanking you for listening to The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.